You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. Well, take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to the book of Deuteronomy, if you will. Deuteronomy, I'm in chapter number 20. Excuse me, I'm in chapter number 24. I'd like to take a text there and read a few verses this evening and then the message from the Word of God. Brother Ruckman, thank you for inviting us to be a part of this exciting adventure. Isn't that wonderful? How how much more exciting can we get than to learn about somebody that's making a decision and an effort to go out and establish a new church? Not a different church, a new church. And the reason I say it that way is we're just looking for an extension of Eastside Baptist Church, an extension of what God has already done in our hearts, but in another community, another part of town, maybe with a special reach to a special group of people, how exciting it is that the gospel goes forth. I often read about Paul's account of the gospel when he speaks of the church of Thessalonica, and he said, from you sounded forth the word of truth. It's like a trumpet, somebody blowing. And he said they heard about Thessalonica, who, by the way, would probably not been in the top 10 church list. When you read about the things Paul had to deal with at Thessalonica, they probably didn't make the top 10. But yet from them, the scripture said, like a trumpet sounded forth the word of God so that men everywhere, everywhere heard about what God was doing there. I'm grateful that God's still doing some things. I'm grateful that he's not finished, amen. I'm just gonna be honest with you and it probably will come out in the message this evening, but I'm grateful that he's not just gleaning the corners. I get aggravated back home to hear folks say, well, we're holding on. We're just got the corners, that's all that's left. We're just picking up what little bit's left over. No. No, 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 we still serve a God that's able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we could ask or think, and it's according to a power that we have to pray down? No. That we have to invite in? No. But he said it's according to a power that worketh in us. It's the power of God that is within us that will enable us to do far above what we could do in the energy and counsel of the flesh. So I'm honored to be a part of that. And I'm honored to be here tonight. Deuteronomy 24, would you stand with me for a moment or two if you'd like to in uh, reading of the Word of God, Deuteronomy 24, and I'll pick up our reading tonight in verse number 17. The Bible said, Thou shalt not pervert the judgment of the stranger, nor of the fatherless, nor take a widow's raiment to pledge. Thou shalt remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt, and the Lord thy God redeem thee thence therefore i command thee to do this thing when thou cuttest down thine harvest in the field thou hast forgot a sheaf in the field thou shalt not go again to fetch it it shall be for the stranger for the fatherless and for the widow that the lord thy god may bless thee in all the work of thine hand when thou beatest thine olive tree thou shalt not go over the boughs again It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. Thou gatherest the grapes of thy vineyard, thou shalt not glean it afterward. 
It shall be for the stranger, for the fatherless, and for the widow. And thou shalt remember, thou wast a bondman in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command thee to do this thing. Thank you for standing, and you may be seated. If you're a student of the Word of God, and I'm certain that you are, when you read these verses out of Deuteronomy chapter number 24, you are reminded about the people that God is speaking to, or this passage in titles uh, speaks about, and that is, of course, the nation of Israel. You know that for more than 400 years they were down in the land of Egypt, but then by a mighty hand, God has brought them out due to a sinful heart and a doubting heart they were unable to go immediately to the promised land the land that God had promised them but they wandered in the wilderness of Sinai for some 40 years but in all of those days God took care of them now they can see the promised land now they are coming down to the time that they're going to cross over and inherit that place that God has provided and prepared for them what a place it is The Bible said that it's a land that flows with milk and honey. Amen. You remember when they sent the spies down 40 years ago, they went into a little place called Eskal. And when they went through the valley of Eskal, they cut down a cluster of grapes. And the cluster of grapes was so great, the Bible said that it took two men to carry it. Now here's a Bible question. Was it that the grapes were so big or that there was so many? I don't know. I can tell you what Dr. Mays Jackson said. Brother Mays said it was the size of the grapes. He said one of those 12 spies was a little bit of a prissy fella, if you know what I mean. And he thought a little bit too much of his hair. And he got down to a place where they had to ford a creek. And he said when they reached that creek and they had to ford that creek, that he reached over and pulled off one of those grapes, took out his pen knife, cut a little hole in the top, sucked all the inside out, turned it inside out, pulled it over his head like a shower cap, and crossed the river. Amen. Now, I don't know if it happened that way, but I like what Brother May said. Amen. But I do know that it was a land that flowed with milk and honey. Brother Eck, the Bible said that when they got to the land of Canaan, God told them, you're going to live in houses that you will not build, and you're going to enjoy corn that you did not harvest, and you're going to reap grapes that you did not plant. And he said, that's the land that I have provided and prepared for you. But before you go, he said, before you go and inherit all of those blessings, he says to the children of Israel two times in my text, first in verse number 18, and then repeated in verse number 22, thou shalt remember. God wanted Israel to remember some things before they received the blessings that he had in store for them. Can I tell you this evening that if we're ever going to inherit all of the things that God has for us, it'll be based on some things we remember. And I believe that that there are some things in our lives that we cannot afford to forget. I'd like to preach under this little title tonight, if I could for just a few minutes, and it would be this, Remembrance That Brings Revival, amen. We all need revival. There's no question about that. I'll be honest. I don't know that I've ever met anybody in the believer's realm that did not need or could use the spirit of revival. We need a revival in our heart. That's personal revival. We need a revival in our home. Amen. 
We need a revival at our house of God. We need a revival in communities just like Sioux Falls, South Dakota, where there's an awareness of the presence and the power of God. And once again, we're able to reap the spiritual blessings that God has provided and prepared for us. But before that ever happens, there'll have to be some things we remember. I want you to notice in my text tonight that there are three things or three statements that Moses makes or God makes through Moses to the children of Israel. Number one, he said, when you set about the business of remembering, he said, number one, we ought to remember our ruin. He said, remember, in verse number 18, thou wast a bondman in Egypt. Thou wast a bondman in Egypt. We ought to remember our ruin. Can I, can I borrow your imagination and your memories tonight for just a few moments? Let's go back five years for some of you, 10 years for others, maybe 30 or 40 years. I've personally been saved more than 44 years. Let's go back in our minds tonight and remember the condition we were in when the Lord found us. We were ruined, amen? Now, I know that's a big scientific term, and I have to watch how I use it amongst the more educated because they don't know what ruined is. But back in the country where I come from, my mother taught us what ruin was. In fact, I say she had a smell test. Y'all know what a smell test is? She said you'd go to the refrigerator, open up the refrigerator, and you'd look inside and there was a, there was a, a, a gallon of milk or a portion of a gallon of milk or some leftover casserole from last Sunday's dinner. And you reached in there and you got it and you yell, Mom, is that casserole any good? Or is that milk any good? And she'd say, I don't know. Bring it here and let me smell it. So you'd take that casserole over, that portion of milk over, and that she'd take a smell of it and she would pronounce judgment. She might say, hmm, that's fine, you can go ahead and eat it. Or she might smell of it and say, no, it's ruined. Throw it in the garbage. It's not any good for anything. It has no value to anybody. It's ruined. Can I say that's where we were? When the good grace of God found us, we were ruined. We were unable to change our circumstance. We were unable to change our lives. We were ruined. We had no value, but he found us. Amen. The Bible said, remember, thou was to bondman in Egypt. I see that there are three thoughts or pictures in this concept. Number one, there's a picture of our depravity. He said we were in Egypt. Every time you find Egypt in the Bible, it's a picture of the world and the system that opposes God. And it reminds us of the clutches of sin that grasp us and hold us and destroys us. We might say something like this. When the Lord found us, we were going down for the last time. We were drowning without a rescue. We were holding our hand up for one last realm of hope and we had no hope, but he found us, amen. Can I say that there's nobody nowhere that has the capacity to change their own direction. We are lost miserably and hopelessly lost without the power of God. There's a picture of our depravity. Then secondly, there's a picture of our debt. He said, thou was to bondman in Egypt. Now he could have used, and he does use in other places of the text. He speaks about the condition of the Israelite in Egypt as being slavery. Now the difference is slavery is a picture of one that has been conquered or captured or overcome by another. 
But then the idea of a bondsman is something completely different. It is a picture of one who owes a debt because of the consequences of his choices. May I say both are true? Amen? I was conceived in iniquity. I was birthed in sin. I was raised in an environment that produced sin. But yet in all of that, I chose to sin. Amen? Sin's an ugly word. On the left side, my left anyway, would be a great big letter S. And that reminds us of Satan and self and all of those things that impact us. How about a society that hates God and despises truth and, and, and legalizes wickedness? Whoa, that's the S. On the other side is an N. That reminds us of an Adamic nature, a nature that condemns us, a nature that draws us into sin. But may I remind you that in the middle of that little word sin, yes, there's Satan and society. Yes, there's a nature. But in the middle is a great big I. Amen. I am a sinner. I chose to sin. I disobeyed the law of God. I brought the judgment of God. And that's a picture in our text tonight. We are indebted. The term bondsman is one who owes another. He must labor for another. He must serve another because of the debt that he owes. The old songwriter said, I owed a debt I could not pay. And it was growing every, every, every day. May I, may I remind you this evening that sin has a price tag. The scripture said, the soul that sinneth, it shall surely die. The wages of sin is death. Amen. And so there's a depravity that is pictured. They were in Egypt. They weren't in the promised land. They were not enjoying the blessings of God. They were in Egypt, a picture of the world. There's a picture of debt. They owed a debt. They were bondsmen. They had to serve another because of the choices that they had made. Amen. And ultimately, this picture of ruin is a defeat. The, the reality is they could not help themselves. Do you know that some Bible scholars are persuaded that the Israelites outnumbered the Egyptians? There's a concept that we believe that maybe somewhere in the range of about 2.1 million Jews and a mixed multitude come up out of the land of Egypt that day. And there's a possibility that they had the ability, that they, that they outnumbered the Egyptians. The, the concept is this, that the Egyptians had been decimated by the plagues. There had been at least one death in every household. But it had been some period before that, the water had been turned to blood, the, all the crops and the trees had perished in the hail and the storms and the locusts. They'd found rice, they'd found lice and frogs uh, in, their, in their bread making uh, uh, apparatuses and in their homes and in their beds. They couldn't sleep. They were sick. They couldn't eat. They were covered in boils. They faced death. They had nothing to eat. They were, they were decimated as a nation. And yet this grand group of people who was not under the plagues they didn't enjoy it. They didn't have to endure the storms. They enjoyed the peace and prosperity that God had afforded them in Goshen. And yet there being over two million of them, they were helpless in their ability to stand against the armies of Egypt. When, it, when Pharaoh went after Moses, he could only muster up 600 chariots. There was two million people. He could only muster up. They were afraid of 600 chariots and horsemen. They were afraid of a people that were weak and beggarly and maybe even considered destitute at the time. Why? Because they were defeated. 
How many times before you got saved did you turn over a new leaf, start all over, make a promise that you never was able to keep? You promised your mother, you promised your wife, you promised your husband, you promised your parent, you promised your children, I'll do better, I won't go that way again, I won't commit those sins again, I won't drink again, I won't cuss again, I won't steal again, I'll get better, I'll do better. And yet you found yourself going back in the same old rut and the same old routine and the same old problems that you had before because you lived a life of defeat. He said, I want you to remember that thou wast a bondman in Egypt. Number two, I want you to notice it gets better. He said in verse number 18, he said, not only should you remember your ruin, but he said, remember that the Lord thy God redeemed thee thence. We're ever going to have a spirit of revival in our midst again. It'll begin when we remember our ruin. We need to go back and remember where he found us. But second of all, we need to remember our redemption. We need to remember what he done for us. Amen? We need to remember that when we were in that condition of absolute defeat, he came by our way. Squire Parsons said, I could not go to where he was, so he came to me. When I couldn't get to him, he came to where I was. When I couldn't approach him, he came to where I was. When I was lost without God, he came to where I was. Blessed be the day of my redemption. Now notice he speaks about his deliverer. Notice the words that Moses uses in this description. He said, the Lord thy God. Now it's just four words. I want to break it into three thoughts. Number one, he said he's the Lord. Now in your Bible, it's a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. You know what that means. That means that it's a direct reference to Jehovah. Amen. The Lord, that speaks about authority. I'm glad I've got somebody that's in charge. I'm glad I know the one tonight that holds the world in the palm of his hand. The king's heart is in the Lord's hand, and he orders the steps of a good man. Amen. I'm glad I know the one who knows tomorrow while it's still today, and nothing has ever occurred to him. Amen. He's God. Now notice he said he's the Lord. And then on the other end of this same equation, he not only speaks about his authority, but he said he's God. He's not a little G God. He's a big G God. Amen. He's a big G God. I noticed on your prayer list that you are a supporter of the Ellis's in, in Dalton. Of course, Dr. Ellis is a friend of mine and with Rock of Ages and the, the president. But I knew Dr. Garris. And I was in a meeting one night and Dr. Garris was preaching. And, and, uh, and, 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 and here's an educated preacher, a phenomenal preacher. And he begins to preach one night in a service, Brother Spencer, and he said this. He said, in the book of Isaiah, there's a text, and I could not tell you exactly what that text is this evening, but he said, he said, there's a text in the book of Isaiah that God challenges our God, the big G God, challenges the little G gods to a contest. And Dr. Garris was standing in that pulpit in Dalton, Georgia, and he said, he said, God challenged all the little G gods to a teeter-totter. That got real quiet because nobody in there knew what a teeter-totter was. Amen. And so Dr. Garris, after a moment, he said, I, for, you edu- for, you, for you modern generation, he said, a seesaw. You know, something that goes up and down on a pivot in the middle. He said, God challenged them to a teeter-totter. He said, when the little g-gods arrived, he said, God stood up. Let his end of the seesaw go high, the other end, the empty end, go low. And he said, get on, let's seesaw. 
And one by one, he said, those little G-gods looked at him and said, oh, no, we're too much for you. We're too much for you. He said, no, no, it'll be all right. Dr. Garrett said, one by one, all those little G-gods crawled on the other end of the seesaw, the teeter-totter. And he said, then God, Jehovah, sat down. (laughs) He said, when he did, all the little G-gods had their legs dangling. And they were paying, let us down, let us down, amen. You say, Brother Moore, why'd you say that? Because I know the God that's in charge tonight. And if he's the Lord, that speaks about his authority. But if he's God, that speaks about his ability. And he's still able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you and I could even ask or think. He can make mountains into molehills. He said, the songwriter wrote, have you any rivers you think are in, uh, uncrossable? Have you any mountains you cannot tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. He can do what no other power on earth can do. I'm glad we have a God that is able. I'm glad we have a Lord that is in authority. But don't overlook that little word stuck in between. He's the Lord and he's God. But we're to remind ourselves in the midst of that text, there's the little word thy, T-H-Y. It's personal, amen. He is the Lord of glory and he is the God of gods. But I've got good news, he's mine. I'm his and he is mine. You see, his lordship is his authority and his godship is his ability. But that little word thy in the middle is accessibility. I'm glad he's not ashamed to be associated with me. He's not ashamed to be identified with me. And he certainly wasn't ashamed to love me. I'm glad he's mine. I'm glad that it's a personal relationship. He said, Israel, you're the chosen of God. He's your God. Amen. Remember your deliverer. Number two, he said, remember the deed. The Lord thy God redeemed thee. Thence. We'll never have revival in our heart. Our homes are at the house of God until we go back to remembering the price that he paid for us. It'll take a long walk down dark Calvary. We'll have to stop and behold some things. Heard a preacher years ago say, we ought to see the night of Calvary and the fright of Calvary and the light of Calvary. I'm glad there's a Calvary, aren't you? I'm so glad that in the darkness of that mount that the Lamb of God, the chosen Prince of glory, the darling Son of our eternal Father was willing to die in our place. He shed his blood. He gave his life. He extended himself further than any man has ever extended himself until his soul became an offering for my sins. And in so doing, he satisfied the holy demand of God and I say bless his name let us not forget the deed amen he redeemed us he redeemed us there's the deliverer there's the deed but let me give you this there's a little word in verse number 18 that that is given to us to give us a cognizant thought a conscious thought a continuation of thought and sometimes we overlook those words but no word in your Bible your good King James Bible is there by accident There's a word there, it's the word thence, thence. The Lord thy God redeemed thee thence, thence. Kind of a complicated word to the modern scholar, but in old English it wasn't hard to understand at all. It simply meant somewhere I'm not, somewhere where I used to be, but I'm not there now. 
You know what I think we ought to remember? Number one, let's remember the deliverer. Let's think about the God that loved us so much that he died for us. Then number two, let's think about the deed. Let's remember the great price that he paid as the blood ran down his brow and dripped from him on dark Calvary's hill. But let's forget not the delight. I'm not what I used to be. If a man be in Christ, he's a new creature. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't find me in my sins and leave me in my sins, but he delivered me from those sins. And there's a delight tonight to know that I'm not what I'm going to be, but thank God I'm not what I used to be. May I remind you that life's a lot better. I'll take the worst day after my conversion and give it a thousand times for the best day that I had before I got saved. How wonderful it is to have Christ in your heart. How wonderful it is to have the knowledge that he's just a prayer away. How glorious it is to know we'll never die. Amen. Is all the world can threaten us with death? Amen. Thank God. We'll live forever. There's a delight in knowing the Lord is our Savior. If we're ever going to have revival, we'll have to remember our ruin. We'll have to remember our redemption then number three, I want you to look back in verse number 18. Momentarily, the Bible said, therefore, I command thee to do this thing. Can I remind you that there is a responsibility? God didn't save us and leave us here for naught. Now, I recognize the fact, I recognize the fact that you and I, that you and I are in a process of perfection. We're not perfect on the outside, we're perfect on the inside. That which is born of God cannot sin, but you can't see that <laughs> because of what's in the, in the way, amen? And God's chipping away, God's purifying, God's cleaning, but he could accomplish that like this. You see, wherever he's got me to at the moment that he calls me, all this gets left behind and what's on the inside is already like him. So we're not here just for perfecting. We're here for performing. We're here because God has a job for us to do. God said, I want you to remember some things. And then he goes into this very technical thing that probably out here in South Dakota is more appropriate than it would be if I was preaching it in Atlanta, Georgia tonight. He goes into this technical thing about harvest. He said, when you have sheaves in the field, when you have olives on the boughs, and when you have grapes on the vine, there's a way I expect you to behave because I've redeemed you, because I have delivered you, because I have saved you. May I remind you that you have a responsibility. If you've been saved by the grace of God, you have a responsibility. And how dare us to be so forward with our Savior as to ask of his blessings when we're not willing to fulfill his task. If he's got a job for us to do, let us do that job and then appeal to him, Lord, would you revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee. Let's notice. First of all, he said that we have a responsibility to the helpless. And he gives us in this context three or four times. He said, there is a stranger, a fatherless, and a widow. He, he said, don't pervert their judgment. Don't take their raiment to pledge. Leave those things in the field. You have a responsibility to those that are helpless. Now, in the context, he speaks about a stranger. That is a political helplessness. They knew nothing about the privilege of citizenship. 
There's a crowd around you tonight that knows nothing about what a blessing it is to be part of the family of God. The songwriter said, I do not know how others make it through who never go to Calvary as I do. They do not know how to go to Calvary. They've never been instructed. They've never been made part of the family. They're not saved. But to those that are saved tonight, we're not strangers. They are the strangers. They're on the outside. They have no privilege. I'll just be honest with you. I'm not trying to bust anybody's political bubble but we have these community pray-ins and we sing kumbaya and rub shoulders together. And we stand around courthouse squares and this crowd and that crowd that wouldn't know God if he came walking in with a sandwich board on them begins to say, let us pray. God's not listening. The only prayer God ever hears is the prayer of a sinner crying out for salvation. Prayer is a privilege of the saint, the son, the child of the king. I'm the one that gets access to the throne room, not on my merit, but because I've been born again. I've been made accepted in the beloved. There's the stranger. They are without privilege. Then there's the fatherless. That's a social social helplessness. They have no protector, nobody to train them, nobody to look out for them, nobody to keep up with them. The last one is the widow. That's an emotional helplessness. She has nobody to love her. She has nobody to uh, uh, have affection for her or to provide for her. Boy, could I remind you that spiritually speaking, outside the doors of Eastside Baptist Church, in the communities that Brother Ruckman will be attempting to reach tomorrow and in the weeks and months ahead, with the with the Falls International Baptist Church, there is a group of people that are strangers. They're not associated or acquainted uh, with the blessings of being part of the family of God. They they are they are fatherless. They don't have somebody looking out for them. They don't have somebody they can run to. They don't have somebody they can talk to. They're like the widow. They don't believe their love. They don't believe anybody cares for them. But it is our duty. It is our responsibility to say to the stranger, you can be part of the family. It is our responsibility to say to the fatherless, I know one who will be a father to you. It's our responsibility to say to the widow or the one that thinks nobody loves them. I'm glad Jesus loves you. For greater love hath no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. And ye are my friends if you do whatsoever I have commanded you to do. There's a responsibility in the harvest. Uh, in, to the helpless, then to the harvest. You'll notice there's three things identified. I don't want to take the time to preach much about them, but let me give you the thought. This matter of the harvest, he speaks first about the sheaves. Sheaves always are a reminder of souls. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seeds, Psalms 126.6. He that goeth forth weeping, bearing precious seeds, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing the sheaves with him. You and I have a responsibility to souls. Somebody you'll come in contact with tomorrow, I'll come in contact with tomorrow, is a soul that needs a Savior. Number two, he speaks about the olive. Olives produced oil. Oil in the Bible, oil in the Bible is always a picture of the Spirit of God. I believe you and I as believers have a responsibility to yield ourselves to the work of the Holy Ghost in our life. Amen. 
I believe that there's a lot of people that get born again, they get saved. You never see much of a change in their lives. You never see them get faithful to church. You never see them get out there doing something for God. And they certainly know, never go that extended mile where they learn to serve God in some particular capacity. Why? Because they never yielded themselves to the Holy Ghost that moved on the inside that wanted to shape them and make them and train them and send them. They never yielded to that. You and I have got to yield to the Spirit of God and its influence, His influence in our lives. Number three, he said, there's the grapes. Now, the grapes in the Bible produce wine. Judges said that the, the wine of the grape cheers both God and man. I, I, I believe that the Bible teaches us wine is a non-alcoholic commodity, the fruit of the vine, amen. And when we think about that, it's always associated with worship. I believe the believer, once he's born again, has a responsibility to go reach the souls of men. I believe he has a responsibility to yield himself to the Spirit of God, but he also has a responsibility to the sanctuary of worship, to be part of a, com of a community, to be part of corporate worship, to be uh, uh, faithful in private worship, but at all times to have a heart that's yielded toward the Father, saying, blessed be the name of the Lord. We have a responsibility to the helpless. We have a responsibility in the harvest. But I close with this. Look in verse number, look in verse number 19. I say thank God for the helper. Now you understand the context. He said if you have a sheaf in the field, don't go get it. Don't go fetch it. The Jews interpreted that to mean two things. One, in the raking, or excuse me, in the cutting process. When that, when, that, when that harvest, when the man that was going to harvest his field would stand with a sickle, he would cut a 360 degree turn with that sickle and he would cut that straw or that, that grain, whatever he was harvesting. He said, don't cut it twice. And you said, don't ever go over it again. Just leave that standing grain. In the results, you can imagine that if you take circles and set circles beside circles, it leads corners. And so those corners were left for the helpless. They were left for the strangers, for the widows, for the beggars, for the paupers, for those that had none. They were to go out and do it. And then he said, that's not enough when you rake it up and you stack up your grain. If there's a bunch of that grain that you've left behind, that sheaf in the field, he said, don't go get it again. Don't rake it twice. Don't go over the boughs a second time. Don't, don't get, glean the grapes a second time. Leave it for somebody else. Now those corners and those sheaves could have produced up to 20% of that man's harvest. God said, leave it. In a rough year when times are tough and the crop's thin, that could have potentially been the difference between his family having enough to get through the winter. But God said, leave it. God said, leave it as a reminder of what I've done for you. But wait a minute, Lord. How am I going to make it? How am I going to survive? Well, look in the end of verse number 19. He said, when you've left these things for the stranger and for the fatherless and for the widow, notice the last phrase in verse 19. He said, that, there's the door, that's what opens up the phrase, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all the work of thy hand. God said, you do what I want to do and I'll take care of the rest. 
You give what I want you to give and I'll take care of the rest. You go where I want you to go, I'll take care of the rest. You be obedient to me even if you don't understand the wherewithal that I've asked you to do it and I'll take care of the rest. I still believe in 2018 that the blessings of God, the help of heaven is most evident in the lives of those that will walk in obedience and that obedience requires that we remember some things. That we remember that we were ruined when God found us, that we remember that he redeemed us when we weren't worth anything. And then we remember that he has expected out of us a certain responsibility. There's something God wants everyone in this building and every believer to accomplish for the glory of God. Paul said at the end of his life, I fought a good fight. I finished the course and I kept the faith. Think about it. God wants us to be faithful to the end. God wants us to stand for what's right and, and, and resist the forces of hell. But God has a course of action that he wants you to complete. But you'll not have that until you remember what God has done.